The reading from God's Word this morning is taken from John chapter 5 on page 1068 of your church Bibles. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, For a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Great, thanks David. Uh, Good to be back everyone, nice to see you. Most of you looking quite happy to see me too, so that's nice. Um, Do keep this passage open, my name's Tim, I'm the curate here, if that didn't make any sense to you. Um, We're going to be looking at this passage uh, in, in just a moment, so keep that open, page 1068, that'd be really helpful. Uh, from John chapter 5. 
Um, before we look at that and before we pray, um, I don't know if any of you have uh, seen this TV program before. It's been around for a few years now. Who do you think you are? The basic premise of it is that uh, this team get together with a, a celebrity or, or someone fairly famous and they try to do all this family history on them and work out if there's anyone you know, famous or controversial um, in their life. And you never know quite what you're going to expect, what you're going to get. Uh, in some cases, they've discovered people who have had uh, ancestors who have done really horrible things and, uh, and all kind of controversial things going on. Um, but one that really stood out for, for a lot of people uh, was of uh, this guy, Danny Dyer, who is uh, who's in EastEnders and has been in various other uh, films and stuff as well. Um, uh, fairly ordinary guy, bit of a geezer, and um, they, they were doing this family history on him. And the, the scene that you can see now is from, I think, in Westminster Abbey. And uh, he's with this very excited historian who's got this great big scroll. And he's scrolling it back, showing all his family history, going all the way back. Gets as far as Thomas Cromwell. He's like, oh, that's a name I recognise. Keep on going further, further back until he sees this great heraldic sign saying Edward III. Uh, and it just, it's, it's a face just malfunctions at that point. It just quite quite deal with the fact that, that he realises he's related to royalty, 22nd great-grandfather, I think it is. And he goes home and tells his wife, and his wife says, oh, I always knew I was going to be a princess. He was very excited about it. <coughs> uh, but it's really important that for him that, that he's made this discovery, to discover that he's got these, these royal ancestors. But it's really important not only who we think we are, but actually who we say we are too. And we see that in, in this passage today, because who you say you are determines how other people see you. So if you're making a claim, like we see the claims made by Jesus in today's passage, that's got to be backed up with some evidence. So it's important that we see, actually, not only who we think Jesus is, we've been singing about that in that song just now, haven't we? That last verse, that we believe in one God. Saviour, Lord and friend, Father, Son and Spirit. So we've just sung that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, we were up at the British Museum yesterday and they were doing these Bible tours. Uh, and I didn't realise until I looked them up online, but they're Jehovah's Witnesses doing these tours. Um, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So why do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and why is this important? We're going to see that in our, in our passage today. Before we do that, Let's bow our heads. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are God who speaks. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, the Bible. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at that, who Jesus says he is this morning. And I think this is probably helpful maybe for three types of people here this morning. Maybe this is all new. Maybe you're new to church and to thinking about things of faith. Well, this will be a great passage for you to, to encounter today because actually it's not just what I'm saying about who Jesus is, but it's actually what Jesus is saying about who he is. So this will be helpful for you today, I pray. But maybe you're someone who's been a Christian for, for years and years and years, but you find it hard when you have a conversation with someone, maybe a friend at work or a colleague, who says, uh, or people have said to me, well, Jesus never said that. Jesus never actually said that he was the Son of God. How do we know whether they're right or not? 
Well, today will be helpful for you. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you've been coming on to church for a while and, and you think you believe, but you've still got some pretty big doubts, particularly about who Jesus is and who, who we say he is and why that matters. Well, this will be a great passage for you today as well. It's important that we get this right, whichever person we are. So let's firstly think then, who does Jesus claim to be as part of who does he say yes. Who does Jesus claim to be? Well, the first thing we see in our passages is that Jesus claims to be equal to God the Father. Have a look with me at verses 16 to 18, that first little paragraph. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that first bit, we see it kind of carries on from what we've been looking at before. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, what things? Well, we look back at the beginning of John chapter 5, and we see that Jesus has healed a man who has been disabled for many, many years. But he does it on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is is our Saturday, and it's a special day for the Jewish people, still is today. It's a day that God has commanded that you don't do any work. But there were these religious leaders in in Jesus' day, the the Sanhedrin, and it was their responsibility to, to keep an eye on what people were teaching, what people were doing, and and had to sort of create these rules. Well, the Bible says not to work on the Sabbath, but, but what does that mean for all these different kind of little things that you might encounter? So much so that even doing good, healing someone on the Sabbath was considered a sin. It was considered something to be punished. And this is why they object to what Jesus is doing. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus then makes this defence. He says, I'm only doing what my father is doing. You see, if they've got objections with what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath, actually their objections is with God the Father anyway. It's not a new thing. One writer put it, while God may be working out his healing slowly, and we see that, we see people get better. God has built things, he's built our bodies in a way so that often we get better, don't we? If we get a, we get a cold, actually most times we will heal from that cold. God is doing that anyway. Jesus isn't doing anything new. He might just be doing something very quickly and very dramatically, but he is still healing in the way that God the Father heals as well. But now something shifts. No longer is their objection to Jesus the fact that he was healing on the Sabbath. Their objection is now that he's calling God his Father. Not just our Father, as Jesus taught us to do, but calling God his Father. He is my Father, I am his son. Because to claim that you were someone's son in Jesus' day is to make yourself equal with them. Like we think about that in, in royalty again. You know, if you are the son of the king or the queen, when that king or queen dies, then if you're the oldest son, then you become the new monarch. Is claiming equality. And all of a sudden, this is a far more serious situation for these religious leaders. And this is one of the things that helps us to begin to to put a picture together of what God is like. Although we never get the word Trinity in the Bible, 
It's the word that the church uses to describe how we see God represented through the pages of Holy Scripture. So we see that God is is spoken about as, as a father. But Jesus refers to himself as the son of that father. Now this is where, for some perhaps, it starts to get a bit confusing. Well, the Bible says that there is only one God. In fact, it's something that Orthodox Jews, they still recite it to this day. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So the Bible says that, that God is one. But it also says that God the Father and God the Son are equal. So hang on a moment. Have you got two gods? Well, no, you haven't got two gods. You've still got one God. But there are two different persons. But then the Bible speaks about God the Father, God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit. God who is sent into our hearts when we believe and trust in Jesus. So hang on a moment, that seems even more confusing. Have you got three gods? No, you've got one God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But this is something that that Jesus is here is just can't deal with. They think that he is blaspheming. That's their problem. And the penalty for this was death. So their persecution no longer goes from being the fact that he's healing on the Sabbath to the fact that he is claiming to be equal with God. But this is a big theme of John's gospel. We go on to John chapter 20 and we see that's why John has written this gospel. So that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God and by believing have life in his name. But another thing this passage does as well, and it would happen for for my Jehovah's Witness friends we saw yesterday, is this makes it really hard to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Because that is what the people are persecuting him for. They recognise that he has made this outlandish claim that he is equal with God the Father. Something on their own no faithful Jew would ever dream of doing. Claiming to be equal with God. Can't make that kind of claim. Punishable in Jesus' day by the death penalty. So no one can actually look at this and say Jesus never claimed to be God. Because he has. He's claimed equality with God. But he's, part of that equality means working alongside. Have a look at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer as they're, as they're getting increasingly pet up about this. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. I get a beautiful image of, of God the Son working with his father. When, when, I was, when I was young, about one or two, uh, my dad was working as a draftsman and sometimes he'd be doing all these sketches and I'd be sort of coming alongside and, and, and trying to help with some of the drawing, probably making things worse. But you see what your father's doing and you want to do that. I was always slightly unnerving today that, that Sammy, my youngest son, seemed to dress uh, really quite similar to me and uh, I was expecting him to come up and preach the sermon to you today, which would have been good. Um, but we see how our fathers work and we want to work like them. And that's no different for Jesus. He is seeing the way that his father works. His ministry is built on that of his father. Which means, actually, if they are claiming that he is doing something wrong, then their objection isn't only with Jesus, is it? But it's also with the God that they claim to worship. God the Father. Because Jesus says the Father and the Son, well, they are working together. They're not independent. The Father's doing his own thing over here. 
dealing with certain people. And the son, where he's doing his own thing, he's got this idea about coming to earth and dying on a cross for our sins. No, God is working together, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to bring about God the Father's purposes. It's a working relationship, but it's also a loving relationship, isn't it? It's not just functional, it's loving. Have a look at verse 20. It says, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Jesus says the Father loves him. Loves him as his only Son. And that means that Jesus' identity and everything that he is doing, it is rooted in that idea of sonship. So in all the things that he is facing, in all the, all the trials and temptation, Jesus does that out of a point of knowing that his father loves him and he always will. And we see that pop up at key moments throughout the Gospels. We see this, this wonderful affirmation of God's love being heard at Jesus' baptism just before he's going off into the wilderness to face 40 days of temptation. Jesus going out knowing that he is Beloved is the old word we use. Specially loved by his father. And because his father loves him, he shows him his work. He gets him involved in what he is doing. And it hints here that even greater things. You think this man being healed on the Sabbath was great? You think me claiming to be equal with God the Father is great? God's going to show even more amazing things than that. Perhaps this is John getting us ready for uh, just a few chapters on where Jesus prays to God the Father, thanks him that he's heard him, and that his friend Lazarus, who was lying just moments dead in a tomb, is now alive. Even greater things than this, Jesus says, will come. So, who does Jesus say he is? If someone says to you, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, we'll say, actually, yes, he did. And that's why the religious leaders had a problem with him. That's why they wanted to kill him because it was his claim to be the Son of God that they saw as blasphemy. He is the Son of God. He is equal. He is working with his Father. And he is loved by him too. So that's who Jesus claims to be. Well, one, what does Jesus come to do? What have you come to do, Jesus, you might say? Well, firstly, Jesus says that he has come to give life. Life. Uh, three big L words that come up again time and time in John's Gospel. Life, light and love. And Jesus says here that God the Father has sent him to give that life. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Jesus then is the life-giving Son. Again, we've seen that hinted at with the idea of him raising Lazarus in a few chapters' time, raising people from the dead. This life-giving power that Jesus has in himself. Life doesn't exist outside of God because he is the source of all life. Jesus says if you want life, we are to go to him. Because none of that, us have that ability in ourselves. We receive life. We, we are here today sitting in these chairs or standing here because God has given us life. Life to begin with, but life that sustains. But also God's given us a quality of life. He's given us each other. 
He's given us clothes to wear. He's given us food and relationships. And he gives us as well the power, life in the face of death. No other religious leader in history has the power to do that. No other philosopher, as wise and clever as they are, has the ability to give us life. Life now and life after death. It is the most fundamental thing any of us need, isn't it? Jesus gives life in all sorts of ways. He gives new life to outcasts. People like lepers, who in Jesus' day would have been on the outcast. They would be on the outside of society. People like tax collectors. But he gives people a new life and a new direction as well. Fishermen. He gives them a new life to follow him as his disciples. And he was doing these things 2,000 years ago and he's doing these things today. We just heard a wonderful example about how in, in Off the Fence and, and working in London with the CUs as well, God giving people a new life, a new direction, a new purpose, a new way to serve, a new life that isn't based on themselves, but is based on serving God and serving others. He is able to give a new life free of sin and addiction. Lots of people battling with addictions in, in our culture in all sorts of ways, in hidden ways. Jesus alone is the one who can free us from those things. Give us real life-changing freedom from addiction. And of course he can give life in the face of death. Life where we need it most. We will all experience death unless Jesus comes back first. And perhaps this year has been a hard year for us because maybe we've lost a loved one or, or, or perhaps further back than that, we're still struggling with that idea. We've lost someone that we loved. But Jesus alone is the one who can bring life in the face of death. We see that again, verse 26. Have a look with me. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You see, following this Jesus, this Lord of life, is the best life. It really is. A lot of people don't think it is to be a Christian, to have the best life. But it is confidence knowing that we have been given something that will never perish, never fade away. Life in all its fullness. John 10.10 Jesus has come firstly then to give life. Secondly, he has come to judge. Now why is that a good thing? Have a look at verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. It's a good question to ask, actually, isn't it? We love the idea of Jesus giving life. Do we love the idea that Jesus has come as a judge? Is that good news? Well, having a judge can be a good thing, depending on who you are. If you are someone, and there are many people around the world who experience oppression, abuse, injustice, then to have someone intervene and say, I'm going to set things right. You're not going to suffer anymore. The abuse is going to stop. I'm going to fix things. For a person like that, and many people experiencing that kind of life today, a judge, a just judge is definitely a good thing, isn't it? If you're oppressed and trodden on, having a just judge is good. But if you're the oppressor, someone who makes life hard for other people, someone who is causing that injustice, that abuse and that pain, then you might think twice about whether having a just judge coming is a good idea for you. You're going to have to be accountable 
It really depends where you're standing in the courtroom as to whether the just judge is a good thing or not. Look at verse 27. And he has given him, Jesus, authority to judge because he is the son of man. Now, the son of man is a word that Jesus loves to use time and time again in the Gospels to describe himself. And it's, it's a term dripping, oozing with meaning. We see it appear in the Old Testament, very famously in in Daniel, where he has this amazing vision of someone like the Son of Man coming in power and in judgment. But Jesus, unlike anyone else in history, is uniquely positioned to be the best judge. Because, as we have seen, that that Jesus is the Son of God. That means that Jesus is God. He is is pure. He is holy. He is not tempted to to be unjust in the ways that we are. He can't be bribed. And his standard is perfect. Loving others, loving God perfectly. We see that in Jesus' life. But he is also like us. He is a man. He is human. He knows what it means to be tempted, to be tested, to be rejected. God the Son is both God and man. So unlike anyone else, he is the perfect person to judge. He knows what it is like, yet his standard is uncompromising. But at the same time, we know what lengths he went to to make it possible for for people like me who aren't perfect, who sin, who get things wrong, who, who too often turn my back on God and what he wants. To experience this life. Because he gave his own life for me. This is the kind of judge he is. A just judge who is gracious and merciful. Verse 30, Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. Why? For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Even in his judging, Jesus is saying that, I don't want to do it to make myself feel good. I want to do it to please my Father. It's the aim of Jesus' whole ministry, to please God. He is totally impartial. Like the perfect child who wants to please their parent more than anything else. But Jesus, because of that as well, because he is the life-giving Son of God, because he is the just judge, it also means that he has come to receive honour. Verse 23. All this has happened so that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. You claim to honour God the Father if you do not honour the one that he has chosen, the one that he has sent, then you do not really honour him. That's what Jesus is saying. What he is calling us here to be then is that a people, individuals, a church, who honour Christ. Now, now the word to, to honour God uh, in Greek is Timotheos, which is where I get my name from. Timothy means I honour God. So I want to put this in, in, the, uh, in the right way when actually we should be a church of Timothys. <laughs> People who honour God. Are there any other Tims actually at BH here? Oh yes, Tim! Be like Timothys. <laughs> not, not like not like us, but as one who honours 
God by honouring Christ. And I just want you to think, and as you go away this morning, I want you to ponder and think, how can I be a Timothy? How can I be someone honouring God by honouring Christ? It's going to be different for each one of us, isn't it? But this idea of honouring means to to set a price. Imagine going to to an auction uh, and you see some precious treasure and and you decide to sell everything you have so that you can get this. You recognise that the cost is worth it. You honour this thing. That's what it means to honour Christ. To have him, whatever the cost. And there often is a cost. So how are you going to honour this Jesus? To centre your life on him. We can honour Christ in all sorts of different ways. We can honour him in the words that we use. So in our coffee time afterwards, how are you going to honour Christ with your words? And the the things that are going through your head as people are speaking to you, how are you going to honour Christ? When when you're you're taking children to school or when you're you're, you're meeting with friends or when you're phone to a relative... Talking about Christmas. What are you doing this Christmas? How are you going to honour Christ with your words? How are you going to honour Christ with with your calendar, with the things that you are doing to show that I honour him? He's the most important person in my life. How are you going to honour him in the way that you spend your money, in the time that, that you spend doing things? It's costly. Jesus says we must honour him so that we are honouring the Father, because of what he has done for us. He has given his own life so that we might have life. He's the life giver. He's the just judge who must receive our honour. And then lastly, just as we tie up, how are we going to respond to this then? Some some ideas then about how we might respond to honouring Christ in our lives. Well, Jesus says this in verse 24. It's a key verse to what he wants us to do. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, but has eternal life and will not be judged. But has crossed over from death to life. Jesus says this person who hears the good news of what he has done and believes. What does it mean to believe? It means to to trust Actually, God loves me that much. Not because I've done anything spectacular or wonderful, but just because he loves me. I trust that Jesus has done enough. That's it. That's what it means. And then build your life on that fact. That means if you do that, then this just judge, you do not need to fear that he might condemn you. No, you have already passed from death to life. There will be no need to fear judgment anymore. Not because you've lived a perfect life, but because he has. Through giving his life for us, the judgment that we would have faced, well, it's been dealt with by him on the cross. He experienced that judgment, so we don't have to. We have crossed over from death to life. We are alive. We have eternal life that will never fail us or end. What good news. Verse 25, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For a lot of people it takes a long time as well. It's worth recognising this. It can take a long time for people to make this decision. 
than I believe. I trust. And that's okay. It's, it's whether we get there in the end or not, which is the important thing. But at the same time, do you see in that verse, Jesus says there is a level of urgency. Because we don't know when that time will come. We don't know how much longer any of us will live. We don't know when Jesus will come back. And that's a good thing. Because it means we don't just keep putting off this decision. Jesus doesn't want us to. He wants us to have life in all its fullness today. We can't just keep putting it off and off. Because he says this, verse 28, 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. A time is coming and these people will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. A time is coming. But for so many of us, we still find it hard to believe. And there's different kinds of disbelief, isn't there? There's this kind of active disbelief that you see some of the Pharisees doing, the religious leaders at the beginning of the passage. They are actively choosing. They see what Jesus is doing and they are choosing not to believe in what he is claiming about himself. You might be experiencing that in your life. You might have people who experience that. But for a lot of people, I think it's a bit more passive. They just haven't given time to really think about it or why it's even relevant. You talk about Jesus or church, and they're like, oh, they go all ego, eyes glaze over, or it's one of these Christians. It's just kind of a passive disbelief. They're not really all that interested, so they think. But actually, they want to know what happens when you die, what happens to your loved ones. They want to know what life and meaning and all its fullness can look like. That's what they're searching for. That's what we're all searching for. This isn't just intellectual assent, though. This isn't just thinking the right things. This is trusting, building your life on this Jesus. Saying, he is my all. It means to say, if I walked outside of church today and I lost everything, everything that was important to me, he is still enough. He is still enough. Jesus is saying that one day we will all stand before his judgment throne, whether we believe it or not. <coughs> Excuse me. Whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not, Jesus is saying it is going to happen. Which is why we need to take his offer of freedom and forgiveness to heart today, to build our lives on it. Because tomorrow it might be too late, mightn't it? So listen to his word. Because this Jesus, he says about himself, he is the loving, life-giving, just judge. And he is trustworthy. And because he is trustworthy, we must trust him. We must trust him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Amen.